Welcome back to another edition of the Camera Books Podcast. On this episode, I interview Brian Fitzgerald. Brian is a former Army infantry officer who transitioned out uh, and went into a process development role at Boston Scientific. He has, uh, it's really an engineering management oriented role, and Brian does not have a traditional engineering management or engineering background. He's a undergraduate degree in an industrial technology, and he was an infantry officer. So on this conference, on this call, we talked about what a process development engineer is and what his primary role is in that type of work and why he's been successful. He's since been promoted, so we talk about what made him successful and allowed him to appreciate that promotion and really kind of get into what's a day in the life of a, of a process development engineer at a leading medical device company. But we get into a lot of different subjects and topics on this conversation. Uh, We talked about why he, you know, when he came to the career conference, he had the option to pursue a lot of different companies, talked about some of the companies he pursued and why he ultimately made the decision to work at Boston Scientific. Um, We we also talked a little bit about him as a hiring manager. Uh, Brian has been back to a Cameron Brooks conference twice as a hiring manager. So we talked a little bit about the process and what he's looking for and, you know, why he has selected the officers that he's selected and hired those that he's hired. And so that's a very nice insight into the mind of a former JMO who came through this process and now goes to their career conference and hires military officers. And then last, we talked a little bit about career progression and where he'll go from here. So a lot of good stuff in this uh, podcast. We hit a lot of different topics and uh, I think you'll, I think you'll appreciate a lot of where we go as it relates to uh, uh, as it relates to the content. If you want to know more about us, if this is if you've stumbled on our podcast for the first time and this is your first time you're hearing about Camera Brooks, you can find a lot more about us as an organization and how we help mil- junior military officers at our website Cameron-Brooks.com. You can also pick pick up a copy of PCS to Corporate America. That book basically has 80 years worth of combined military officer transition experience and advice. So another great resource out there for you to learn more about a transition. Okay, without further ado, here's Brian. Okay, Brian, hey, thanks so much for taking some time out of your busy day to join us on the podcast. Welcome. Uh, Thanks, Pete. Appreciate the opportunity. Okay, so I enjoyed getting to know you personally. You and I met specifically on May 21st of 2015. We, We did that over the phone. But uh, I remember our first conversation, I remember our second conversation, and so I'm excited to have you on today. Um, let's start with a little bit about your military background. Um, you did a lot of higher-level JMO-oriented jobs before you decided to transition. You were a company commander, you were battalion S3, you worked at USACE. So why did you transition when you did? Kind of give us the, the backstory there. Sure. Um, there were two two primary reasons. I enlisted after 9/11, and my purpose in the military really wasn't about a career. It just it just happened that way. I, I had fun. Mm-hmm. I continued to be challenged, and I saw a way forward uh, for 15 years. Um, mm-hmm. And then the other side of it was the family side. So um, in, the, in the meantime, we were raising kids, and mm-hmm. there was this uh, juncture at that point after 15 years where I had been a, as a captain in two KD positions, major KD positions. Mm-hmm. I was being offered a third. Uh, major KD position as a battalion XO, none of that time really counted um, towards that KD time. So after I got promoted to major, 
I would have to do it all over again. And from the looks of it, I would be doing about three more years of KD time. All of that was a really um, pretty significant burden on the family. And as the reason I was in the military still was that challenge and having a, a future that I was looking at, looking forward to, and, and it turned mm-hmm. into a future that I really wasn't excited about. Um, and it was also, you know, really hard on the family to spend all that time away. And as right. I was talking with you, your the description of, you know, as a as a company grade officer, you've really peaked um, in comparison to your civilian counterparts, and you have a lot to offer um, mm-hmm. outside the military. And it's going to take a long time before you reach that next peak again in the in the army. That really resonated with me. So mm-hmm. the timing just seemed right. And as I looked at kind of the opportunity cost. Um, versus a, you know, regular army retirement and active duty retirement and drawing retirement pay, as opposed to starting a new career before I was 40 and really having um, an opportunity to build that. Um, mm-hmm. And all of the soft stuff, all of the family um, sacrifice that goes into staying around for 20 years, all of that kind of came together at the same time. And really just uh, yeah. the, the timing actually was good uh, for me, although I, I would imagine <laughs> unusual for most. Yeah, but it was, and it was certainly fortuitous for us to meet because you, you, obviously before I hit the record button, you and I were chatting a little bit, and it sounds like things are moving so strongly and positively in a great direction, which is really where I want to go uh, in this conversation. Before we do, though, I would like to talk a little bit about your conference experience. I know that was over three years ago, so, um, but I, I actually thought about, I read through some of the conversations that we had prior to the conference, and one specifically with my colleague Joel Junker that stuck out to me in a conversation with Joel before the conference. So you didn't really, you didn't, at that point, you hadn't really known what companies you were going to interview for. And he read some companies off to you that we had started to match you with. And I wonder if you can think back and remember to that conversation and and what you were thinking as he was rattling off a bunch of companies to you. Do you recall that conversation? Yeah, I absolutely do. And, and you know, it, it kind of was uh, was water on a stone at that point. I had no idea um, what I was getting into, honestly, uh, at, not at the not at the experiential level where I could make a decision based on something I'd done in the past. It was so foreign to me at that time that it was really kind of a gut instinct on the one hand and an enormous amount of reliance on Cameron Brooks on the other. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think what I what I learned and, and I. Um, I would say this was the guiding principle, although I really became much more aware of it uh, or conscientious of it throughout that process. And it ended up being the reason why I selected Boston Scientific, actually, was I, I was looking for the things that I enjoyed about the military, the, the positive aspects of service in the Army, and, and where could I find those same positive things. And then at the same time, what were the things that I would rather just leave behind and not take with me? Um, as I as I moved to the next phase in, in my professional life, and at, at the time when I was re- when he was reading off the the company names, I I don't think I could really make that connection. But through the interview process and especially the follow ups on site, um, it started to become very obvious. You know the things that I was looking for, I saw in some companies, and the things I was looking to move away from, I saw in some companies, and that really became kind of the filter. Um, for how I made my decision in the end. At the time, I don't think that was obvious. I don't think I could have explained it. Um, but certainly after having made the decision and, and lived with it for three years, it's um, it's definitely become that uh, obvious and, and fairly easy for me to explain now. 
admittedly, I asked you that question because I, I, I assumed I knew the answer, <laughs> and I wanted to get you on tape saying it because uh, or on <laughs> yeah, tape and, or recording. <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's. I don't know that anybody who hasn't already had kind of the commercial experience that, that could speak to it. Um, it's similar to if you just re reverse the roles. You know, if you could imagine all of the you know, field or, or flag officers from different military branches sitting in hotel rooms interviewing Fortune 500 managers for jobs as company commanders, you know, like, well, right. what do you think about the Marines or the Army? People, I, I right. don't know the difference, right? Like, uh, <laughs> right. So it's a very similar experience, I think, and, and you just have to put the shoes on the opposite feet and it, and it kind of resonates a little bit better with folks that are on active duty, I imagine. It's such a good point. I mean, I, I think that's a logical extension that I try to make on a fairly regular basis, but but it's not something to that we necessarily think of because it, we really think of the transition as it, it, the transition is a one way street. It's always a one way street. There's no way to you know be some you know senior manager in in a company in corporate America and say, hey, I'm going to go be uh, you know a battalion XO. It just that's a that's a do not enter. <laughs> so, and I imagine uh, that. We, we, that Mm -hmm. That becomes kind of the, the cognitive block for the folks in the military mm -hmm. of, you know, that never happens. So how can I go the, you know, mm -hmm. go that direction, right? It, we don't think of it as a one-way street. We think of it as a gulf, as, a, as a, mm -hmm. a canyon you've got to cross. And, you know, I can't imagine a civilian coming to that level of leadership in the military. How could I possibly do the same? And and it is, yeah. a, it is a heck of a, it is a heck of a gap and you got to figure it's out how move, to expand right. it. Yeah, yeah, no, it's definitely it's not it's not the natural move, right? For guys like you and me and mili military service members, men and women who grew up professionally in the government, it, it isn't this supernatural or uh, very natural, better way to say that, very natural move over to corporate America. But uh, now that you're three years into it, or you know, we're going to talk more about it. I do want to ask you one more question though about the conference because you had a very successful conference. You had twelve interviews. Um, every company that you met with said yes to you. Um, you you were offered, or so therefore you were offered a bunch of follow-up interviews. You 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 basically ranked a bunch of them in your four or five five of them in your top group. You went on follow-up interviews with four of them. All of those follow-up interviews gave you physical, actual offers, and some of the offers that you received were. You know, there's variability in the pay, but some of the offers that you received were higher paying than others, um, but not drastically, obviously. But why Why did you ultimately, through every company pursuing you and every, you know, all the companies that you followed up with giving you offers, why did you ultimately choose Boston Scientific? And you started to get into that a little bit, but tell us more. Sure. So the the, the thing that I was looking for was still having that sense of purpose and something that I that I could get passionate about and be interested in because I I kind of recognized as I was going to these different companies that it was going to be a fairly long haul for me. I I, I underestimated it even then, um, but I did recognize that this was going to be a lot of work and it, and for me to stick with it, I, it was going to have to be tied to more than a paycheck. Um, and so that was that was probably the primary driver of of selecting Boston Scientific. I could I could really get behind the idea of even on my worst day, we're making innovative medical devices that are improving the quality of or even saving folks' lives. And that was um, mm -hmm. that's something that I, I definitely could attach kind of that service-oriented mindset to. And I could picture on, on the worst days that it, that would be enough to get me into work with some energy. And on the best days, it would just make it that much better. So that was that was kind of the primary part. The other side of it was 
um, a, a lot of what I saw in other organizations was almost a cookie cutter um, uh, approach to here, you're a leader, we're going to put you into this this field and that field and this field will move you around and you're kind of you're kind of becoming a, a cog in the wheel in some sense and that, or at least that's the way it it looked to me and that was exactly what i was trying to walk away from in the army where it was hey we have an approach and you're gonna you know fit in here and fit in there and and that's that's good for a lot of folks that want to have predictability you know the, the positive side of that is actually the predictability and being able to plan ahead and know what's coming your way and really what i was looking for was kind of the creative approach of hey this is chaos we have no idea what's going on um, but we would, we were really, we know we need a leader and we know that they can do great things and we'd like you to step in and do that. And that was the, the offer I was given at Boston Scientific of, you know, we've got just explosive growth ahead and we don't know what it's going to take to be successful. Um, but we'd like you to help us figure that out as opposed to, Hey, we've been doing the same thing for 30 years. Um, and you're going to fit in here and go there and do this and do that. And so that, that was really the, uh, the other side of it of, um, kind of the, the intrigue and maybe a little bit of the, of the rush of, of kind of chaos and stepping into that. So I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit cause I didn't, I didn't give you this question earlier and I didn't really think about it till just now as I was considering y your path, you, you know, Boston scientific being a fortune 500 company, lots of, lots of different operating companies and avenues and products. I mean, it's not some small little mom and pop shop, right? Major, major medical device company in the world yep. and you actually received two offers from boston scientific um one in the cardiovascular and cardiac rhythm management realm and one in the endoscopy realm um and i'm not trying to pit one against the other operating company wise but even in that situation do you think that 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 the decline of the offer from one boston scientific versus another was r relative to the, your reasoning that you've already stated um, a little bit different, in fact, actually. So that was um, so. I, th the reasoning that I gave was more about selecting the company, selecting the job than location had a little bit different uh, reasoning to it. So in this particular situation, the endoscopy um, offer was for project management in the um, endoscopy headquarters in Marlboro in Boston, which mm -hmm. is a, a research and development area and a corporate headquarters. So those are the only mm -hmm things at that location. The, the offer that I accepted was a functional manager role in Maple Grove, which has one of the largest manufacturing sites, two R&D mm -hmm. centers, and a large process development um, wing, which is what I'm in. That mm -hmm. process development wing um, also services all of the franchises, so we do work with all of the customers in the internal in the company worldwide. And that was the reason I selected this um, primarily on the professional side. Uh, personally, on the family side, Minnesota was was maybe just slightly better than um, central Massachusetts. Sure. Um, from from the perspective of family, although I'm in, I'm a I'm a New Englander in, in, at heart, so there was a little bit of sacrifice there. Um, but yeah, it was. Uh, so the idea here was I'm going to a manufacturing company. I identified that as look, it's that's what they do is make these devices. It makes sense for somebody coming from outside of industry to be close to the manufacturing and, and really identify with what's the heart and soul of this company and what do they need to do well. And I need to be close to that to learn it in order to be apply it. So if you think 10, 15 years down the line, I wanted to have a really strong foundation in what is the core business of this company. And being out in Marlboro, um, I think the project management, I would have learned a lot, um, probably would have done much more with the medical regulation side and some of the other things that are also core to the sure. business. But what I felt was closest to my strength and what I could pick up the quickest and still have relevancy 
throughout the company in the future was the manufacturing. So being being right next to that, I can I can walk to the building next door. I don't even have to go outside, and I'm on the manufacturing floor, um, and I really get to know wow. that very well. And at the same time, still have that global reach of providing process development for any of the customers in the company. As you said, it's uh, 30,000 people, $10 billion revenue. It's a big company. Mm-hmm. Um you know, it's interesting. I just want to pull a point through for those listening who are in planning on or thinking about making a transition. You know, when, when Brian's talking about his decision-making, I mean, just think of everything that went into it. It wasn't just like, hey, I'm going to go be a team leader or I'm going to do something, right, or something specifically functional. It was, uh, what does the company do? What's the culture of the organization? Um, considering, you know, different sites and what they do at each site, because even in two different Boston Scientific opportunities, which I assume both were were going to be good relative to the type of the company it is and the quality of the company, but even in that, you were deciding location. That was obviously a deal, but also generally, functionally, where your strengths were. I mean, that's where the real functional nature of decision-making comes in is like after you've like looked at companies and sites and cultures and locations, and it's like, okay, functionally, that's a part of it too. But it's only one part of a lot of different things. And I think people get way wrapped up in, I want to be doing X when I get out of the military. And there's just so many factors other than just doing functionally X. You know what right. I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Let's get into um okay, so you start 3 years ago, over 3 years ago now, you're starting as a process a manager process development. First off, you know, what is that? Can you give us a day in a life and then maybe some of the challenges you had in learning that job initially? <laughs> sure. So that was deep in learning for sure. I'd say it took me about six months to figure out what process uh, development was actually. Um, and I was leading a team of 14 engineers who were executing it every day. So um, uh-huh. it's not obvious um, <laughs> by any means. Um, so what we do in process development is take the product that research and development designs and builds one of to prove theoretically that this design will treat a disease state the way we think it will. And we in process development take that and then turn it into a a, a process, a repeatable um, method of reliably producing that device to meet the specifications we say are safe for use and effective, and then convince a regulatory body like the FDA that that is in fact what we are doing. So we are controlling that process such that it's statistically reliably going to do uh, what we say it's going to do in a safe manner. So um, it's it's basically taking something that's built once and turning it into something that we can build exactly the same way um, millions of times a year. And that includes equipment design, equipment controls, it includes inspections, it includes human behavior um, as the operators, you know, kind of make their own mark on the parts as they build them, things like that. Um, just listening to you, and I, that's why I love having these conversations, just listening to you, Brian. I remember having conversations with you in the Army, and uh, you're very astute, you're, you're eloquent in your speech and in your thoughtfulness. That's very obvious, and, and I'm reminded of that even now in this conversation. But, man, you sure know what you're talking about. Um, you, you know what I mean? It's like, whoa, it's that a, sounds it's, intense. It's been a crucible. Um, so I, I think uh, it's very heavy engineering. It's, it's engineering actually um, kind of at a level that I really haven't seen before because you're applying first principles engineering 
you really have to understand, you know, why is it that this device is is acting the way it does? And there's a ton of kind of mystery in this. Of we don't really know what we're doing to this part to make it do that. So even when we build something correctly, it's a challenge to say why we're building it correctly. And I really love the fundamentals that you have to apply. You've got to master the basics here. And every time we've made a breakthrough in engineering, it's been it's been an algebraic equation that somebody applied to wow. a problem and, and solved for it, which that that's fun to me. I'm not an engineer, so that was a stretch. That's not my background. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, that was a bit of a deep uh, a deep dive, and and I'm still learning every day um, from people that are much smarter than me um, how to do my job. So that's that's good actually. It keeps things fresh. Um, the other side of it is the medical regulation. So actually understanding the all of the compliance and being in a regulated uh, regulated industry, which I think there were some parallels with being in the military. And, and mm-hmm. you know, I, I tell people around here, it, it takes a lot to drop a bomb. It takes a lot to fire a bullet in the military. There's, we understand being regulated. Um, so that, that part was not unusual to me. Um, but, but getting to know all of the ins and outs and kind of the second order effects of, you know, being prepared for a submission, knowing what all the inputs are for that and, and how to be ready for that is, is also fairly deep um, understanding that I've got to get to to be effective where I'm at. Where do you spend most of your time? Where do you spend the majority of your time? Are you more in a headquarters-oriented environment, or are you across the way or in the manufacturing floor? Is it is it an equal amount of both? Would you say it, it flexes based on um, situation. So a lot of what I'm doing is I have engineers that are working on projects. We've got about 47 projects in my team right now that we're working on. All of these are devices that we're trying to move from from theory to actuality or to improve uh, a specific aspect of if they're already on the market. Um, so I really lean on my engineers to do that um, quite a bit. I have subordinate leaders that I entrust with that and I check in on to see where they're at. I'm asking, I like to say I ask the dumb questions. I expect to get smart answers. And when I start getting dumb answers, I get worried and I start digging a little deeper. But it really is a, you know, because it's so linear, it's really about explain to me your logic. And if I can't follow it, then there's there's a, at the very least a flaw in your understanding of your own logic, if not a flaw in the logic itself. So um, it, at that level, at the project level, I'm really just kind of providing the resources and making sure they're being used um, effectively and efficiently. On the manufacturing side, um, I have a partner, I have a couple of partners in the factory next door to me that I primarily work with because my technology is on their manufacturing floor. And um, a lot of that is about better utilization of the technology they have, leveraging my subject matter experts to help them um, exploit the technology they have or control it better. And a lot of that's relationship building. Um, I would say I'm I'm getting to know the manufacturing process, the metrics that, that kind of drive their business better, um, and building a partnership there is more the the function that I have. I'm kind of unique in that I lean on my peers and process development managers who are much more technical. They're all engineers for the most part who have been promoted up into management, and they lean very heavily on the technical side of their experience, less so on the leadership side. So I've kind of filled the gap on the leadership side and been working more on building that organizational leadership within our function. And uh, I lean, and that necessitates the delegation of, you know, the technical oversight to my subordinates and leaders, and then also leaning on my peers for their help. This is a, this is a point I wanted, I wasn't thinking about asking either, but it it just kind of draws me there. So you, you said you're not an engineer, although you have an undergraduate degree in industrial technology, which, which is, and I'm not looking at your transcript, but is manufacturing mm-hmm. related. So it's not like you're totally unfamiliar with processes and manufacturing, et cetera. And so um, 
but I get I get a lot of concern from officers who are transitioning going into a little bit more of a technical role and an engineering role, which really, when this role started, when Boston Scientific started bringing this role to our company, the, the requirement was we need an engineer. As you well know, because you've come back and recruited from Cameron Brooks since, that requirement mm-hmm. is relaxed because that's not really true. It's not we need an engineer. We need people who can lead engineers, right? Tell right. me more. Right. Yeah, that's absolutely it. And, and and honestly, we're still developing that an understanding of that and our and our our definition of how our how our function works, how our group works, which was about 163 people when I joined three years ago. It's up to 275 now. Um, it's changed with that growth. So the the idea that we now have enough leaders at a high enough level that that's it's fundamentally a different kind of leadership than a small technical team leader, which is what it looked like mm-hmm. more three years ago. Um, now yeah. we have the bandwidth at the manager level and especially at the senior and director level to focus more on the organizational dynamics and being a better organizational leader rather than diving deep into technical details on a project. Sure. That's still necessary, um, and it's still it's very much you know being a, a um, you don't have to be an expert at your craft of engineering, but you definitely have to be um, aware of it and able to conversant in it, I guess would be the best way to say it. Like you, you've mm-hmm. got to have a technical mm-hmm. aptitude in order to be able sure. to lead the people that are doing the work. So, I, th- I think that's really it, and I actually use that expression all the time. It's it's more about the aptitude to engage people, but or not more, I'm sorry, it, you have to have the aptitude to engage with people, but it's more about the ability to lead them. And you're talking about organizational leadership and structure and process, which is which is so powerful from an experience perspective and what, bring, what JMOs bring to the table probably more than anything else. So, you know, obviously I'm, you're just validating everything I talk a lot about, but it's, that's really why we, a lot of times why we do these conversations, just because it's great to hear someone who's like, yep, that's exactly right. That's exactly what I'm up to relative to my military experience and relative to what I do now in corporate America. So um, let me, let me ask you about, uh, I was I didn't we hadn't talked about this but I looked at your LinkedIn profile you went from manager process development to senior manager process development what, was that a promotion what what is what is that all about Yeah that was a promotion so the the we have two levels of management management 1 and management 2 or junior and senior um there's not really a defined break between the two and um what I would say is that the manager one is is executing and the manager two is planning so one's more of the um tactical level of you know giving direction to people that are working on individual projects and making sure that they're doing good work the senior manager is more of controlling a group and either interpreting or setting strategy and then the operational piece of connecting that to the daily tactics so I'm looking three to five years out, selecting the next technologies we're going after, and then looking for ways to fund that technology and people that can push it forward. So the difference was I, I moved from a um, a group where I was reporting to a senior manager. I had a team of about 14. After maybe a year and a half or two years, um, we we were growing so quickly that we needed to make some changes, and I was offered a role in a different technology, in the metals uh, technology. So... Um, I took over that team and grew it from 25 to 46. I'm up to about 50 people right now um, over the past year. And in the course of that growth, kind of justified the role of a senior manager for this role. 
So yeah. that was the uh, the vice president went ahead and promoted me to that and bet on bet on the future, I guess. Yeah, right on. Um, I, I may be getting a little bit in the weeds here, but you said set strategy, look three to five years out, looking at new technology and finding technology. What does that mean? Are you looking at all the all the projects that the engineer, the, de- the development engineers are working on and thinking like, oh, you know, you guys, this prototype is the one that's going to be the next big thing in the market. I mean, are, is that what we're talking about? It's a little bit, um, it, it, yes, there's a part of that. So it's two-sided. Um, one is that we, I, I'm, I'm interpreting signals from um, business quotes. So when our franchises, when our customers, the people that develop the products within the company, um, look to build. Oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. I don't want yep. you to finish that. I don't want you to lose that. But say that again. Your customer is who? Because I think that's an important distinction that people should appreciate in this in this conversation. Who who is your customer? Sure. So earlier we were talking about endoscopy, peripheral intervention, um, mm-hmm. you know, interventional cardiology. Those are franchises within our company. Those are okay. business areas that are focused on treating disease states um, uh-huh. because their point of call is with a you know, cardiac surgeon or with an, uh-huh. um, you know, interventionalist or someone like that. And and the products that they work on are, are specific to that um, diseases that you would find in that area of the body or with the doctors that would be, be treating them. And they're working on devices to treat those. So all of those seven different franchises are my internal customers. So as a components supplier, I build the metal components, or at least I build the technology that builds the metal components that go into those. So laser cut tubes, um, stents, the, the, the laser cutting and heat expansion of those stents, all of, the, all of the technology and processes that go into building those metal components are the things that I'm looking at. Gotcha. And more, I look at, so when they, when they build a prod, uh, product, I look at those components with my manufacturing counterparts and we, just say, we say, hey, we can build that for $8 a part based on the cycle time it takes to build one and the inputs from material and labor, et cetera. So what I see in the business signals is they'll also quote that at some other vendors that are external to our company. And they're, okay. if they come back at $4 a part, we're twice as expensive. Mm-hmm. We should be less because we don't have a profit margin uh, for the internal right. customers. And when I right. see that we were getting underquoted, um, uh-huh. what I'm saying is there's a fundamental difference in the technology. They, they've obviously moved ahead or making things faster or more efficiently. Mm-hmm. And that's a signal for me to go to the factory and say, okay, how, what's, how long is it taking to cut this? And then what right. can I do? What was the last time we reviewed that technology? And, and then em- emphasize the need to make a breakthrough there with my team, and they, they work on that. You know, How can we improve the cost on that? So that's one um, way that I would get into the developing new technology. The other way would be something like structural hearts. We have heart valve replacements big right now. Those are fundamentally different pieces of equipment, different pieces of medical devices, um, much more complicated. The precision required to be repeatable is, I would say, at another level than what we typically do. And, and that's not to say we aren't very precise. This is just sure. going from thousands of an inch to microns tolerance in order to be repeatable. Um, so that's another driver saying, look, I don't know what that space is going to look like over the next five to 10 years, but I know that they're going to need more of these similar types of components. What technology could we either find or develop that would help us to more repeatably make more precise, smaller parts? Wow. So fascinating. I actually want to come back to a point that you just made because I, I, I hope it wasn't lost on those who were listening. And that is you said that 
you basically your customer or the different franchises operating companies within your business that may you know that 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 market a specific pro- make and market a specific product to a specific set of customers or surgeons or physicians for a specific de- disease state or a set of disease states that are related um but you also said that just because you're Boston Scientific and they're Boston Scientific doesn't mean that they are necessarily obligated to use your parts and supplies that you provide. If they can get it an equally sufficient price or product for a lower price, then they're going to go do that because that's a profit center. Now, of course, you don't have a margin to uphold, so you shouldn't be being undercut on price relative to quality at any point in the game. But but you're saying maybe sometimes there are situations where that occur, where maybe it's an older process that you haven't looked at in a while and things like that. Can you just can you just validate that? Because I think that's what you said, and it's very interesting. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, and the other thing is that we've invested enormous amounts of capital in being able to efficiently do one thing, cut stents, for instance. So our lasers are mm-hmm. set up to cut a pattern on a steel tube or a nitinol tube, and that's one type of technology we have 47 of those, you know, half million dollar lasers cut in stents, millions of them. And then somebody comes to us and says, well, we want a flexible steel tube that can bend throughout the tortuous anatomy in the body. And we say, well, we cut stents so we could use our technology to do that. But it's fundamentally a different technology in the sense of how it's cutting that pattern. And and the speed that you cut that with is much more important than the pattern that we're cutting a stent in. So that was a that was one indication. For instance, other companies that only have two or three lasers that do these you know jobs very quickly for other device medical device companies or for themselves or for some other kind of industry can change the way that they use those lasers and maybe be more responsive to changes in design and they would get a cost savings in doing that. For us, that was a that was a kind of a big signal from the market to say, hey, your technology is great for cutting stents. However it doesn't translate directly to a laser cut tube that's meant to be flexible. So that was one of the cases where he said, hey, we've, we're experts at one thing. That doesn't mean we're experts at everything. We need to kind of eat some humble pie and go back and re, you know, rethink the way we do things. And maybe, maybe that's a different laser. Maybe it's applying the technology we already have in a different way. But that was kind of the, that's kind of the, the risk of what we're doing um, here is becoming experts in one area sometimes leads us mm-hmm. to think that we're experts at everything. Boy, that is so fascinating. Um, I'm going to change gears on you here a little bit. Actually, I'm going to mm-hmm. come back to the to the career progression. Um, I, I, I'm sure you're not rushing to get out of the job that you're currently in, but you know, as you look at the landscape of the future, what are some areas that that you're particularly interested in? Maybe some things that you could get into down the road. You know, it's funny. There's kind of this balance. Um, I think when I when I joined, I thought within six months I would be net neutral. I would be you know learning as much as I was producing. Um, and we talked a little bit before the phone call uh, was recorded that that it took about three years actually. And, and it was funny at a six month review, my boss, you know, I went in thinking I'm failing. I, I told my boss I'd, I'm not achieving what I thought I would be. You know, I'm, I feel underwater, and he kind of looked at me a little funny. I said, well, how long were you thinking it would take for me to get up to speed? And he said three years, uh, funny enough, Um, and he was absolutely right. So there is kind of this part of readjusting. Like you're not stepping into taking command of an infantry company that you were a platoon leader in, so it's it's very direct. You know, it's a natural progression. You do have to give yourself time to make that transition and get up to speed. So in one sense, I'm I'm really happy to be where I'm at. Um, I've promised my team three years in addition to well three more years so basically I said I'm I'm going to take over the team and stay here for three years regardless of what else happens. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and and that was that's been good. It's provided a lot of stability for me and for them. The the promotions do come quick, and the opportunities do come quick. Um, so I've already been offered um, other roles that would um, lead to promotion or be promotions again, and I've turned them down in order to stay in the role that I'm in because I really enjoy um, building some credibility with myself. Frankly, like I I, I really want to know that I can step into a role like this in other areas in the company and leverage the same success for them. Um, and so that's some of this is just building my own credibility. Some of it's building credibility with my team and, and folks around me and making it something that's transferable where it's not just, hey, I've got a particular leadership style that works here, but maybe we have an organization that's a little bit more resilient to changes in leadership style in the future. So that's kind of my my near-term focus. In the long term, I'm probably going to move into operations and maybe look at business development. We're a very acquisition um, aggressive company. We we do a lot of venture capital um, investments and startups and then acquire them once they prove feasibility. Or we right. buy people who are on the open market and um, and make their products more effective and efficient and right. globally market them. So I really like yeah. the business development side of things as well. You know, the cool thing is, you know, one of the things that military officers say to me and to us quite often is, you know, when I say, why are you getting in the military? They say, I want more control over my career. Um, I mean, the way that you're talking, you just have so much control. You, Like you said, you've been offered some opportunities or at least been able to have the opportunity to explore things that would take you quickly in different directions, but you've decided, no, I want, I, I have an intentional reason for being here. You know, I'm getting really good at what I'm doing and I want to, I want to contribute to the organization. I want to contribute to my team. And, and you get the opportunity to say no or say yes. And everything regarded to your yeses and nos or regarding your yeses and nos have trade-offs associated with them. And that's not good or bad. It's just what it is. And so I just love, I mean, this was not planned whatsoever, but I just love the way you're describing that because that's exactly what we see. You have control. And the second point I want to make is when you talk about long terms, you're talking about operations, business development, acquisitions. You know, who knows what you're going to do? But the beautiful thing is, unlike unlike the military, where you can say, "Hey, in five years, I know where I'll be," and you even said that earlier, "I got to go do my KD jobs as a O4 now," which I've already done. Right? You already knew what was going to happen. In this case, it's like, "No, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to do this now because I've made a commitment, and this is where I feel like I'm most valuable to the organization." And and in the future, I'm kind of interested in business development, so I'll probably try to find my way over there. And it's like you choose your own adventure. That is so much control. Now, sometimes control can be a bad thing. It can spin out of control if you're not careful, but you're obviously taking a slow, methodical, and thoughtful approach to where your career is going to go. And, and, and you're not making any promises that this is where you're going to be, but I hear a lot of confidence in your voice like, no, I'm going to do this, and then, then I'm going to figure out how to do that over there. And that's really enticing and exciting to a lot of people. You know, and that was um, one of the things that uh, the gut influence uh, initially and early on in the in the decision making process of which company I was going to go to. I, another reason I chose this is I got to meet the vice president and all of the senior managers in this organization and several others um, from around different sites in Boston Scientific, and that um, openness to the the idea that people are better when they're producing where they want to produce when they're doing the things they want to do was very obvious and and you would put that in the you know the air quotes of culture I think if you were trying mm -hmm. to sum it up um, but that mm -hmm. that was something that was very intriguing and inviting to me coming to Boston Scientific and it's proved true I, I you know you, you're saying con control over your your um, 
uh, your career, and there's trade-offs, and there certainly is. You know, I, I, there were other companies where I got a clear indication that if I exercise control over mine, independent of my boss or, or one or two levels up, there would be a consequence, right? Like, hey, this is a this is a go along to get along kind of culture, and you'll rock it to the top if you do what you're told. Um, but don't deviate too far from what you're told. Whereas in Boston Scientific, it was very much a, look, we're going to try to find some some place that you fit, that you enjoy being you know, productive in, because that's what's best for the company overall. It's just fundamentally different ideas of how to best employ people. And both of them work. You know, Goldman Sachs looks entirely different from Boston Scientific, uh, for instance, mm-hmm. in how they do things. And there's happy people in both places. So mm-hmm. um, there's nothing mm-hmm. wrong. That's I'm not right. passing judgment at all. But for me, it definitely mm-hmm. was that idea of... Um, yeah, I'm going to get I'm going to get have a, a, a 51% vote at least in where I go next. Yeah. Um we're running short on time, but I do want to ask you two more questions. The first sure. one is probably a multi-part question. Um so you've been back now to inter- you've been with Boston Scientific for a little over 3 years. You've been back to interview at the Cameron Brooks conference twice and you've hired at least one person both of the times that you came back to the conference. So um, what did you like, the the question that I sent, and obviously what did you like and not like about the process being on the other side of the fence, not not being the interviewee, but being the interviewer? Yeah, so I I really like as a a hiring manager, I really like the idea of going to a conference knowing that I'm going to be able to walk away with a very high quality candidate who's likely to accept an offer. Um, that's been the case every time I've gone. It's been the case, in fact, I've brought several other peers and cross-functional um, hiring managers with me to conferences, encouraged others to go and help them through the hiring process separately of that. So I'd say I'm, I'm probably at least partly responsible for hiring um, by now about a dozen uh, Cameron Brooks alums um, indirectly or directly. So I love the idea that when we have a requirement for a capable leader, we can go to Cameron Brooks and be 95% confident we're going to come home with one. And they're going to be happy and, and connected to the company. And, and all of them, as far as I know, have stayed with the company, even if they've changed roles after the first one to three years. So mm-hmm. that's been a a great tool to have to solve a short-term need for immediate hire of leaderships uh, candidates. So that's that's the thing that I like the most about Cameron Brooks. And I know what I'm getting. I go there and I know how to very quickly interpret um, you know, who's going to be a good fit for the company and, and very quickly get to that person and, and make a compelling uh, offer to them. The thing I well, like to feel... Go ahead. Yeah, no, I actually want to hear that because I was about to cut you off because you're going to, yeah, please continue. Sorry about that. Sure. No worries. So the thing I'd like to see different, so we're, we're really challenged with um, diversity inclusion metrics, especially at the leadership level. So we have to have a diverse slate of candidates. And, and we do see uh, diversity in Cameron Brooks candidates. And I, and I like to point out that the military overrepresents, um, it, you know, pick any demographic um, generally. Um, so but, but we don't we don't get credit so for for on both sides internal to the company we need to do a better job of keeping track of who we're talking to and um you know not not being held back by this perception of metrics versus what's the actual results that we're getting and on the other side it's you know that integration of those company requirements up front in the process so we're not hurting ourselves um you know, as we're going through the conference. So those are, it's kind of a, a um, I would say kind of the 
the internal machinations of human resources and driving towards metrics and things like that, that we just got to be smart about how we apply them um, and how we, you know, do a good job of integrating that with what we're trying to do. At the same time, I think half of the people we've hired through Cameron Brooks since I've been here have been uh, have been women, and they're all in leadership roles here. So, I, you know, I, I continue to point that out, um, that we're actually doing better with Cameron Brooks and achieving all of that um, requirement for diversity, which is good, um, but we're not doing a great job of, of taking credit on our side, uh, quite sure. frankly. So. What about the military? You know, the military is a diversity-oriented category, but is anybody ever really talking about that? Um, yeah, we do, and, and, I, and I point that out. And, I, again, I think there's a, it's ironic that the stereotype of the military is opposite of uh, what it actually is. And I, and I do point out the, that we might be stereotyping the military when we say it's, you know, it's all white males coming out of the, the military because like it's not the case at all. Um, mm-hmm. So that's that's kind of a there's a a lot of what I do with the veterans recruiting that I'm involved in for the company is mm-hmm. is trying to change that perception and and point out the successes that we've brought in um, because I think they do kind of get missed. We bring military candidates in from all over the place, all different kinds of hiring um, opportunities, and if you and nobody really aggregates them on our side, and so it does it does get missed. Um, I think it's mm-hmm. just an, an educational piece that's ongoing, and when I have those conversations with decision makers and support staff. Um, you know, I just I, I have to be on top of my game and point that out. So. Yep. Yep. Okay. Last question, and then uh, and then we'll part ways here. Um, you know, try try to imagine yourself back in you know generally the uh, you know uh, early 2016 timeframe. You know, you're not mm-hmm. six to nine months before coming to a career conference. What advice can you give a you know? potentially or soon to be transitioning military officer something that you know really really helped you to be successful yeah so the big one was trust the people that have that have been there right they're they're trying to give you good advice i know we all want to have a uh, our hands on the steering wheel and be controlling but um you got to you got to trust the folks that have already been through there whether it's the the people that went ahead of you and are you know three five ten years into a career that have transitioned and kind of seen short and long term effects of their decisions, or it's um, you know recruiters at Cameron Brooks and having the conversations with them. I, there was uh, um, there were times when I kind of like man I don't know I'm not sure about this uh, I'm not sure if this is a good fit for me, um, but I listened to Chuck in particular you know as I was going through my final decision making and it was really a you know, kind of being guided along my own decision-making and, and listening to myself talk, speak out loud to somebody who had already been there, had already done it and seen it done many times over, that could kind of help me apply what I wanted to do with a little bit more certainty to what was actually in the field, like what does the environment look like? So that's the big one to me is, is you got to listen, you know, that the and, and the, the best conversations you can have are with the folks that have seen it um, either through their own eyes or, or observed it closely over and over again. And you still want to apply your passion. You still, it's, it's going to be your decision at the end of the day. Um, sure. But you do want to gather that information and really l- listen to your self-talk because you'll, you'll hear, you know, what you're passionate about, where your decision-making really lies and, and what's important to you. And then they can help you, you know, whoever's been there can help you interpret what's out there and where, where you best fit based on that. So hard. What you're describing is easy to say and is easy to hear, but it's hard to do because when you know you're you have a family, you're you know married with children, 
and you're you know responsible to ensure that you're transitioning well and then I like your analogy I haven't said it but I think I'm going to start to it's like everyone wants trying to have their hands on the steering wheel and and even two different hands on the steering wheel from two different people is potentially problematic so right. um very very well said, and I appreciate you saying that. Uh, Brian, it it was great to chat with you, man. You, you've got some fascinating work that you do and did an excellent job describing, and I think people that listen to this podcast are going to be very interested and excited about that type of work. And I think we didn't really get down the road of this, but I think sometimes people are, have huge mis- misperceptions about what operations actually is, and you know they have this perception that it's not super sexy, and therefore it's just going to be like being in the military, and mm-hmm. nothing could be farther from the truth. And so I think that your insight, in particular, has been very helpful to uh, hopefully, hopefully, been very helpful. Certainly been enlightening to me, and hopefully to those who uh, to listen. So. Thanks for almost an hour. I really appreciate that. I know you're a busy guy, and so uh, we wish you the best and hope to have you back on the podcast at some point down the road. Will do, and Pete, thanks for thinking of me. really appreciate it.